So I just put uh, up a post about uh, maybe about 25 minutes ago and the post was uh, talking about one of my core research areas, um, which is psychological safety and the extent to which identity safety as experienced by black men, women at work and in academia, um, how those two things are connected. And it's basically challenging the assumptions of psychological safety as some blanket kind of concept that really only speaks to whether or not employees feel empowered at work to express their opinions um, and their disagreements in ways that do not invite negative repercussions. I mean, that's essentially the basis of it. And there is some underlying theory involved in that, needs theory, uh, equity theory, organizational justice theory, and things of that nature as it relates to psychological safety and how that relates to employee engagement, employee productivity, um, psychological and emotional well-being at work, stress and burnout at work, counterproductive behavior at work, and workplace deviance. So psychological safety is pretty much broadly defined within that. In my conversations about identity safety, my central premise is that it is not feasible for African-American women, black women, or women of color who identify as black in the workplace to experience psychological safety if they have not yet been able to enjoy um, and, and uh, experience identity safety at work. What do I mean by identity safety? I mean the extent to which uh, African-American women, women of color, black women or women of color who identify as black are able to experience the workplace in ways that affirms their identity and their gender. This is non-negotiable, okay? Race and gender and the intersectionality of those two identities and how they impact the workspace for black women every day, not only in corporate environments, but in public and government uh, workplaces, as well as in academia, as faculty of color experience and as students pursuing educational degrees and such in these institutions. Certain areas of identity safety have to do with hair, hair, hair touching, hair styling, hair grooming choices that black women have to kind of constantly police or are always being externally policed by majority cultural norms and organizations. What do I mean by that? I mean, telling employees that braids are not professional, that, uh, naturally textured hairstyles are unprofessional. When you tell someone that the way that the hair grows out of their head naturally is unprofessional, that's an identity assault because that is a permanent condition of the person's identity. And if that's unprofessional, then the only choice that person has is to engage in some identity altering methodology that will then make that not the case, right? So there's hair straightening, there's hair extensions, there's all sorts of different things that black women will go about doing in order to perceive to be perceived as being professional at work. Now, this does not mean that every black woman that 
decides to wear extensions or decides to straighten their hair is dealing with some type of identity confusion in the workplace. Not everybody deals with that. A lot of times it's choice, but a lot of the time, and the research backs this up, this is not a matter of opinion. The statistics bear it out. The research bears it out. Uh, laws that have been put into place in both California and New York bear it out that these types of practices have real impacts, negative impacts, psychological and social emotional impact on women of color, on black women in the workplace every day. Hair touching, touching our hair without our permission as if it's some social anathema. You know, it's a it's something for you to touch and admire and fetishize. That's not appropriate. Um, telling people, telling black women that their hairstyle is not professional or somehow using a client argument as a way to put distance between your personal dislike of hairstyling choices and um, that employee's right to racially free express racially at work. The second component of identity safety at work is social styles. A lot of the times when black women are engaged in workplace communication, they're often perceived or described or told that their communication is aggressive or they're angry or they're argumentative. Um, or the opposite side of that is that people in the workplace believe that in order to connect with black women on an interpersonal level, that they need to engage in communication and language practices that are stereotypically negatively associated with black women's communication choices. And we're talking about things, you know, finger snapping, head twirling, colloquialisms that are really uh, born out of media caricatures. Okay, um, when we go to assert our competence and intelligence in the workplace, being undermined or being made to feel as if somehow we're being too intense about our work. So there's that idea and there's tons of research in the organization and the communication research and in the communication studies, as well as management studies on the impact. Okay, and there's several different theoretical perspectives that help to frame what I'm discussing, whether it's standpoint theory in organizations, muted group theory in organizations, uh, uh, feminist communication, feminist theory in organization, black feminist theories in organization communication, code switching, bicultural communication in organizations. I mean, there's a whole host of research out there that supports this idea that identity safety in the workplace is a commodity that black women are not as easily afforded. And there's a history involved with that. And a lot of times people don't want to acknowledge the history because they kind of want to compartmentalize things and make things seem like it's that's a long time ago. That's not what we're dealing with now. The enslavement period was a long time ago. That's not what we're dealing with now. You're being too sensitive. You're angry. Any of those assumptions that really are red herrings so that the core issue of what's being discussed doesn't have to be discussed um, needs to be pointed out. And I would just say that 
the reason why these issues are as complex as they are, and you'll often find these issues centering around very specific racial relationships between specific groups, mainly in the case that I'm discussing, we're talking about the interpersonal workspace relationships between white women and black uh, women and white men, white women and black women. Okay. Um, black men to an extent, um, but my primary research area as it relates to this is on black women. Okay. There are a lot of black men that are out there doing research on the behalf of African-American men and black men, men that identify as black who can speak to um, the subordinate male hypothesis, um, which is a theory that looks at the ways in which racial difference from the position of people of color is perceived in the workplace, okay? Facial hair, uh, natural hairstyles, locks, braided uh, hairstyles, afros, and things like that. It impacts them too. It's not just black women, but black women find themselves the object of unwanted hair touching um, uh, more often, okay? Um, and these issues around uh, communication policing, there's that issue. Um, the third issue is naming conventions. Now, this spans across both black and, I mean, both black men and black women, where uh, resumes, there have been several studies that have been done, resumes with quote unquote black sounding names. I don't know. I mean, I guess there's a way to to, to quantify that, but just for the sake of uh, face validity, right? We all know that different cultures uh, uh, can engage in different types of naming conventions. Okay. So specific names are more than likely, we're 50% more likely not to receive callbacks when the identical resume was submitted with a white sounding name, the callbacks pretty much came immediately. Okay. So these are real things that are happening. A name is very central to a person's identity. Okay. We name things. We exist in this life as human beings through our conventions of naming. That's a tree. That's a flower. That's a rose. That's a philodendron. That's a cat. That's a dog. That's a specific breed of cat. That is a German shepherd dog. That is a Lamborghini. Whatever the case may be, we make sense of our world through engaging in language and acts of description. So when you don't acknowledge a name, that's a problem. Okay. Um, the third area, the fourth area of identity safety has to deal with colorblindness and the alternate uh, axis of that, which is colorism. Okay. So you have colorblindness where you have a lot of well-intentioned non-black people, primarily white people who will tell you that they're colorblind. Now I understand, and I believe wholeheartedly that many of these individuals talk about being colorblind and having colorblindness as a value that they believe elevates them above making decisions and discriminations. And when I say discriminations, I don't mean discriminating in terms of negatively, I'm talking about choice, right? Discriminant uh, analysis that somehow elevates them above not engaging in uh, color politics that I just see you as a human being. 
but that's not really rooted in reality because whether you choose to see my color or not, again, my race, my color, my skin tone is a central facet of my identity as a black woman. So I need that for you to acknowledge that. I don't need you not to see it because inherent and underlying that kind of statement is there's something wrong with you seeing it. That there's some distress that you're caused by not being able to see my race, by not being able to see the hue and shade of my complexion and my skin. So we have to be very careful about how we phrase things, okay? Color blindness is a mythology. We all have the ability to discriminate amongst colors. I mean, we learned that with the first, uh, first pack of eight crayons that we get when we're five or whatever age you were, okay? So... Um, Part of acknowledging and promoting and really beginning to understand what identity safety is, is recognizing and deconstructing these well-meaning mythologies that really serve as protectionism from having to engage in acknowledging difference. Okay, so the access, the other access of that is colorism. What do I mean by colorism? I mean the extent to which different shades of black women are or are not advantaged in the workplace. Colorism is something that has gone on for a very long time. And remember at the beginning of this conversation, I talked about all of these things happen within a context. They're not divorced from what happened three year, 300 years ago. I know people want to really believe that because somehow to not be able to talk about race without the context of American slavery is um, somehow there's something wrong with you. You can't seem to let go. You're caught up in something that happened a long time ago that has nothing to do with the people of today. All of that is an, uh, a fallacy, okay, because it's not even the point. The entire point is, is that people are connected to a history and a history is connected to a psychology, okay? And it is through a history that a people come to know themselves and are able to explain um, who they are, their identity as a group and their identities uh, through the individual process, individuation process as, as individuals. So it's very important to understand that when we're talking about identity safety, when we're talking about colorism, when we're talking about black women's hair, when we're talking about how we define standards of beauty, we need to understand how we define what's an acceptable body type, who's fat, who's thin, who's overweight, who's not, whose communication styles are acceptable, um, what naming conventions are more appropriate. We're talking about a history where the very first experience that we had with the workplace is on the plantation. This is a fact. This isn't an imagine. This isn't something I'm imagining. This is the fact of the matter. So now, other people may not contextualize it as a workplace, but LinkedIn, for all intents and purposes, people want to. Uh, contextualize it as a professional workplace-based, worksite-based social media platform. 
And we have tons of human resource professionals on LinkedIn. We have tons of management professionals on LinkedIn. We have tons of recruiters and hiring agents on LinkedIn. We have tons of uh, professional coaches on LinkedIn. Everyone who's invested in the idea of work. So it's very important to understand how these ideas are connected to work and what the very first context of work, when you're talking about administrative management science, when you're talking about the hierarchy and division of labor, when you're talking about workforce specialization, when you're talking about uh, marketable and uh, specialized skills, you're talking about the plantation, okay? Understand that my analysis is a critical analysis. A critical analysis is a particular view, frame, um, through which society, culture, history, psychology, medicine, labor, law, employment, religion, education, military, whatever you want to talk about, it is looking at those things as social science phenomenon that are amenable to a critical analysis. So that's what I do. And I understand that people may be uncomfortable with that, but that's for them to reconcile, right? Because we all have a lane that we're in and we all have work that we're doing. And work is not only some place that you go, work is primarily what you do. And this is the work that I do. And I understand if other people are intimidated by that or don't want to have those conversations because they're concerned um, in very real ways, because I, I totally understand about how these kinds of conversations or how this type of engagement on a quote professional website is going to impact them professionally. I challenged my LinkedIn uh, audience the other day to define what it means to be professional, because if what you're saying is to talk about race, to talk about gender, to talk about race and gender and the inequalities that exist in a majority, minority, uh, socio-political, socio-economic, socio-demographic context is unprofessional, then you're basically saying the existence of a whole category of people itself is unprofessional. So one of the things that I like to do is I like to challenge people to think critically and analytically about what things that they're telling themselves, what are they believing about the stories they tell themselves and how much of definitions that we've given other people the right to define for us are uh, valid. Okay, because for me, definitions have a lot of meaning. They're not just what's in the dictionary. There's a sociological uh, dictionary. I don't know if people are aware of that. I'm sure the sociologists are and psychiatrists and social psychologists and tons of people are, but dictionaries are many. There are legal dictionaries. There are sociological dictionaries. There's biblical dictionaries. There's the, you know, regular Merriam Webster's dictionary. Um, there are tons of different types of dictionaries. Okay. So we, we have multiple ways of defining things. Okay, so when we're talking about defining what the workplace is, we need to understand that for black women, which is the focus of my discussion, experience with the workplace, but <laughs> just by definition, was on the American plantation during chattel enslavement. Okay, and that is where a lot of 
the disciplines that we study every day come from. Gynecology and obstetrics, plantation. In terms of all of the major advances, advancements that were made in the 18th and 19th century, 20th century, that's where it came from. Okay. J. Marion Sims, if you're unfamiliar with who he was, look him up. Look up his public kind of what we accept him as and then research controversies associated with J. Marion Sims and his unanesthetized work on black mothers and infants on the plantations. Okay, and then you'll have a different view. There is a great book authored by Harriet Jacobs, who is a professor emeritus and doctor um, out of Harvard who wrote the book called Medical Apartheid. I would encourage uh, people to check that book out and read it. Just read it. Okay, and then you'll have a a um, kind of more understanding of what you're experiencing when you come upon one of my posts. There's another great book out by a Dr. Jonathan Metzl called The Protest Psychosis, How Schizophrenia Became a Black Disease. And he goes through an entire history of how psychiatry as a profession um, underwent very racialized changes that happened at a period of time where black people were fighting for civil rights in this country. Okay, I study psychology in my doctoral work, and I have had to study a lot of people that if it's not for me bringing to light their troubled associations, Skinner, Thorndike, James McKean Cattell, a lot of these people who have authored major theories and major developments in educational and cognitive and differential and behavioral psychology, critically analyze who they were and what types of things that they were involved in. Okay, this is important. And as a researcher, that's what I that's that's my focus. So um, as I was saying, I kind of got off topic a little bit. But as I was talking about how this relationship is contextualized from the plantation to the corporate environment of today uh, for black women working in predominantly white institutions, this is the definition, they're called PWIs, um, or predominantly uh, white work environments, where there are a, a lot of aspects of our identity that are constantly under assault and that are being policed so much so that we begin to internally police ourselves. Okay, so I talked about hair, hair grooming, hair styling, hair choices. I talked about social and communication styles, interpersonal communication styles, um, interpersonal communication competencies. I talked about color blindness and colorism. I talked about naming conventions. And another thing that I want to talk about is gender. Um, we talk about, I talk a lot about the concept of intersectionality. Intersectionality was developed by uh, Kimberly Crimshaw, a lawyer, um, who, uh, African-American lawyer, um, I want to say in 93 or 4, coined the term intersectionality. What is intersectionality? Intersectionality is basically looking at how race and gender and other socially defined classes as the theory has evolved um, intersect to create interlocked 
interlocking systems of oppression and domination. Okay, and so the reason why this frame was created, intersectionality, was because you had a lot of black women who were not having their unique needs and history and experiences and interests spoken to um, because as a group, black is black and primarily black male. And as a group, woman is is white and predominantly white women. Um, and the, again, these aren't my ideas. There's research out there that supports this from now until uh, before I was born. <laughs> but, um, and so we're talking about gendered racism, essentially, okay? So you have situations in the workplace where white women and black women are coming together and working together, but one of us is experiencing a constant attack on our identity, okay? And that has a relationship with the plantation because black women and white women largely developed their interpersonal history on the plantation. And those relationships and those contexts carry through generations and decades and generations and generations into the present. Okay, this is a fact. And my role is simply as a social science researcher um, is naturally to be an educator about that research uh, and those things that I uncover. And so I just want people to be aware about um, when you're seeing something from me um, that I have a goal in mind. And my goal is my research focus and my research philosophy, which is oriented around justice and equity. And as a uh, researcher, my job is not to speak to what people want to hear. It is to inform them about what they need to know, what they should be open to considering, questions that maybe they should be asking reflections that maybe they should be undertaking um, and different ways that they can arrive at being more informed about things. Um, the liberating thing about being um, an educator and about being a social science researcher is that you get to follow the facts and you get to pursue the truth regardless to who it offends. So I understand that, you know, it may offend people's professional sensibilities and, and I get that. Um, but you can do your work and, and I'll do mine and hopefully we can learn from each other. Um, and the last thing that I want to say is um, when you read my post and there's emphasized words in capitals, that's not anger. That's actually advice that I was given by LinkedIn experts, <laughs> who, or I guess they're experts, who have said that in order to get the algorithms to work in getting your post visibility, that you need to uh, type in some type of kind of abbreviated one line or two liner sentences, and that you should use a, a certain minimum amount of capital, uh, capital title case. <laughs> Uh, capitalized all capitalized uh, words so that's what that is so uh, it's it's never anger I'm, I'm actually very quite calm and easy to get along with 
Um, but I understand that when you're reading what I'm writing, it, it makes you feel convicted of something or maybe it makes you feel alienated in some way. Or maybe you should explore why you're feeling like that. Black, white alike, it really doesn't matter. Um, if something that I'm writing is eliciting a response, an emotional response in you, you might want to start asking yourself, why am I feeling this way? What is going on within me that's causing me to have this negative reaction or this adverse reaction or this uncomfortable dis-ease with what I'm reading or what I'm seeing or what I'm considering? Because I think there's a lot that can be learned from that. There's a lot that can be learned from that. So um, that is all that I had to say on identity safety. Well, um, for now, because this has almost been 30 minutes. Um, that's kind of an overview I'll be getting more detailed about that topic as the weeks move on. Um, but I just want people to understand that I am a researcher that is focused on justice. And um, because of that, much of what my analysis will come from a critical perspective. Okay. Critical theory is a a particular perspective. If you're unfamiliar with it, um, quick Google. Um, will help you understand more about that so that you um, can appreciate a little better um, or have less conflict <laughs> about things that you may come across um, that are authored by me. Okay, thank you for your time. So I just put uh, up a post about uh, maybe about 25 minutes ago and the post was uh, talking about one of my core research areas, um, which is psychological safety and the extent to which identity safety as experienced by black men, women at work and in academia, um, how those two things are connected. And it's basically challenging the assumptions of psychological safety as some blanket kind of concept that really only speaks to whether or not employees feel empowered at work to express their opinions um, and their disagreements in ways that do not invite negative repercussions. I mean, that's essentially the basis of it. And there is some underlying theory involved in that, needs theory, uh, equity theory, organizational justice theory, and things of that nature as it relates to psychological safety and how that relates to employee engagement, employee productivity, um, psychological and emotional well-being at work, stress and burnout at work, counterproductive behavior at work, and workplace deviance. So psychological safety is pretty much broadly defined within that. In my conversations about identity safety, my central premise is that it is not feasible for African-American women, black women, or women of color who identify as black in the workplace to experience psychological safety if they have not yet been able to enjoy um, and, and uh, experience identity safety at work. What do I mean by identity safety? I mean the extent to which uh, African-American women, women of color, black women or women of color who identify as black are able to experience the workplace in ways that affirms their identity and their gender. This is non-negotiable, okay? Race and gender, 
and the intersectionality of those two identities and how they impact the workspace for black women every day, not only in corporate environments, but in public and government uh, workplaces, as well as in academia, as faculty of color experience and as students pursuing educational degrees and such in these institutions. Certain areas of identity safety have to do with hair, hair, hair touching, hair styling, hair grooming choices that black women have to kind of constantly police or are always being externally policed by majority cultural norms and organizations. What do I mean by that? I mean telling employees that braids are not professional, that uh, naturally textured hairstyles are unprofessional. When you tell someone that the way that the hair grows out of their head naturally is unprofessional, that's an identity assault because that is a permanent condition of the person's identity. And if that's unprofessional, then the only choice that person has is to engage in some identity altering methodology that will then make that not the case, right? So there's hair straightening, there's hair extensions, there's all sorts of different things that black women will go about doing in order to perceive to be perceived as being professional at work. Now, this does not mean that every black woman that uh, decides to wear extensions or decides to straighten their hair is dealing with some type of identity confusion in the workplace. Not everybody deals with that. A lot of times it's choice, but a lot of the time, and the research backs this up, this is not a matter of opinion. The statistics bear it out. The research bears it out. Uh, laws that have been put into place in both California and New York bear it out that these types of practices have real impacts, negative impacts, psychological and social emotional impact on women of color, on black women in the workplace every day. Hair touching, touching our hair without our permission as if it's some social anathema. You know, it's a it's something for you to touch and admire and fetishize. That's not appropriate. Um, telling people, telling black women that their hairstyle is not professional or somehow using a client argument as a way to put distance between your personal dislike of hairstyling choices and um, that employee's right to racially free express racially at work. The second component of identity safety at work is social styles. A lot of the times when black women are engaged in workplace communication, they're often perceived or described or told that their communication is aggressive or they're angry or they're argumentative. Um, or the opposite side of that is that people in the workplace believe that in order to connect with black women on an interpersonal level, that they need to engage in communication and language practices that are stereotypically negatively associated with black women's communication choices. And we're talking about things, you know, finger snapping, head twirling, colloquialisms that are really uh, born out of media caricatures. Okay, um, when we go to assert our competence and intelligence in the workplace, being undermined or being made to feel as if somehow we're being too 
intense about our work. So there's that idea and there's tons of research in the organization and the communication research and in the communication studies as well as management studies on the impact. Okay, and there's several different theoretical perspectives that help to frame what I'm discussing, whether it's standpoint theory in organizations, muted group theory in organizations, uh, uh, feminist communication, feminist theory in organization, black feminist theories in organization communication, code switching, bicultural communication in organizations. I mean, there's a whole host of research out there that supports this idea that identity safety in the workplace is a commodity that black women are not as easily afforded. And there's a history involved with that. And a lot of times people don't want to acknowledge the history because they kind of want to compartmentalize things and make things seem like it's that's a long time ago. That's not what we're dealing with now. The enslavement period was a long time ago. That's not what we're dealing with now. You're being too sensitive. You're angry. Any of those assumptions that really are red herrings so that the core issue of what's being discussed doesn't have to be discussed um, needs to be pointed out. And I would just say that the reason why these issues are as complex as they are, and you will often find these issues centering around very specific racial relationships between specific groups, mainly in the case that I'm discussing, we're talking about the interpersonal workspace relationships between white women and black uh, women and white men, white women and black women. Okay. Um, black men to an extent, um, but my primary research area as it relates to this is on black women. Okay. There are a lot of black men that are out there doing research on the behalf of African-American men, black men, men that identify as black, who can speak to um, the subordinate male hypothesis, um, which is a theory that looks at the ways in which racial difference from the position of people of color is perceived in the workplace. Okay. Facial hair, uh, natural hairstyles, locks, braided uh, hairstyles, afros, and things like that. It impacts them too. It's not just black women, but black women find themselves the object of unwanted hair touching um, uh, more often. Okay. Um, and these issues around uh, communication policing, there's that issue. Um, the third issue is naming conventions. Now this spans across both black and, I mean, both black men and black women where uh, resumes, there have been several studies that have been done resumes with quote unquote black sounding names. I don't know. I mean, I guess there's a way to, to, to quantify that, but just for the sake of, uh, face validity, right? We all know that different cultures, uh, uh, can engage in different types of naming conventions. Okay. So specific names are more than likely were 50% more likely not to receive callbacks when the identical resume was submitted with a white sounding name, the callbacks pretty much came immediately. Okay. So these are real things that are happening. A name is very central to a person's identity. Okay. We name things. We exist in this life as human beings through our conventions of naming that's a tree, that's a flower, that's a rose. 
that's a philodendron that's a cat that's a dog that's a specific breed of cat that is a german shepherd dog that is a lamborghini whatever the case may be we make sense of our world through engaging in language and acts of description so when you don't acknowledge a name that's a problem okay um the third area the fourth area of identity safety has to deal with color blindness and the alternate uh, axis of that which is colorism okay so you have color blindness where you have a lot of well-intentioned non-black people primarily white people who will tell you that they're colorblind now i understand and i believe wholeheartedly that many of these individuals talk about being colorblind and having colorblindness as a value that they believe elevates them above making decisions and discriminations. And when I say discriminations, I don't mean discriminating in terms of negatively. I'm talking about choice, right? Discriminant uh, analysis that somehow elevates them above not engaging in uh, color politics that I just see you as a human being. But that's not really rooted in reality because whether you choose to see my color or not, again, my race, my color, my skin tone is a central facet of my identity as a black woman. So I need that for you to acknowledge that. I don't need you not to see it because inherent and underlying that kind of statement is there's something wrong with you seeing it that there's some distress that you're caused by not being able to see my race, by not being able to see the hue and shade of my complexion and my skin. So we have to be very careful about how we phrase things, okay? Color blindness is a mythology. We all have the ability to discriminate amongst colors. I mean, we learned that with the first, uh, first pack of eight crayons that we get when we're five or whatever age you were, okay? so. Um, part of acknowledging and promoting and really beginning to understand what identity safety is, is recognizing and deconstructing these well-meaning mythologies that really serve as protectionism from having to engage in acknowledging difference. Okay. So the access, the other access of that is colorism. What do I mean by colorism? I mean the extent to which different shades of black women are or are not advantaged in the workplace. Colorism is something that has gone on for a very long time. And remember at the beginning of this conversation, I talked about all of these things happen within a context. They're not divorced from what happened three year, 300 years ago. I know people want to really believe that because somehow to not be able to talk about race without the context of American slavery is um, somehow there's something wrong with you. You can't seem to let go. You're caught up in something that happened a long time ago that has nothing to do with the people of today. All of that is an, uh, a fallacy, okay, because it's not even the point. The entire point is, is that people are connected to a history and a history is connected to a psychology. Okay. And it is through a history that a people come to know themselves and are able to explain 
um, who they are, their identity as a group and their identities uh, through the individual process, individuation process as, as individuals. So it's very important to understand that when we're talking about identity safety, when we're talking about colorism, when we're talking about black women's hair, when we're talking about how we define standards of beauty, we need to understand how we define what's an acceptable body type, who's fat, who's thin, who's overweight, who's not, whose communication styles are acceptable, um, what naming conventions are more appropriate. We're talking about a history where the very first experience that we had with the workplace is on the plantation. This is a fact. This isn't an imagine. This isn't something I'm imagining. This is the fact of the matter. So now, other people may not contextualize it as a workplace, but LinkedIn, for all intents and purposes, people want to uh, contextualize it as a professional workplace-based, worksite-based social media platform. And we have tons of human resource professionals on LinkedIn. We have tons of management professionals on LinkedIn. We have tons of recruiters and hiring agents on LinkedIn. We have tons of uh, professional coaches on LinkedIn. Everyone who's invested in the idea of work. So it's very important to understand how these ideas are connected to work and what the very first context of work when you're talking about administrative management science, when you're talking about the hierarchy and division of labor, when you're talking about workforce specialization, when you're talking about uh, marketable and uh, specialized skills, you're talking about the plantation, okay? Understand that my analysis is a critical analysis. A critical analysis is a particular view, frame, um, through which society, culture, history, psychology, medicine, labor, law, employment, religion, education, military, whatever you want to talk about, it is looking at those things as social science phenomenon that are amenable to a critical analysis. So that's what I do. And I understand that people may be uncomfortable with that, but that's for them to reconcile, right? Because we all have a lane that we're in and we all have work that we're doing. And work is not only some place that you go, work is primarily what you do. And this is the work that I do. And I understand if other people are intimidated by that or don't want to have those conversations because they're concerned um, in very real ways, because I, I totally understand about how these kinds of conversations or how this type of engagement on a quote professional website is going to impact them professionally. I challenged my LinkedIn uh, audience the other day to define what it means to be professional. Because if what you're saying is to talk about race, to talk about gender, to talk about race and gender and the inequalities that exist in a majority, minority, uh, socio-political, socio-economic, socio-demographic context is unprofessional, then you're basically saying the existence of a whole category of people itself is unprofessional. 
So one of the things that I like to do is I like to challenge people to think critically and analytically about what things that they're telling themselves, what are they believing about the stories they tell themselves and how much of definitions that we've given other people the right to define for us are uh, valid. Okay, because for me, definitions have a lot of meaning. They're not just what's in the dictionary. There's a sociological uh, dictionary. I don't know if people are aware of that. I'm sure the sociologists are and psychiatrists and social psychologists and tons of people are. But dictionaries are many. There are legal dictionaries. There are sociological dictionaries. There's biblical dictionaries. There's the, you know, regular Merriam-Webster's dictionary. Um, there are tons of different types of dictionaries. Okay. So we, we have multiple ways of defining things. Okay. So when we're talking about defining what the workplace is, we need to understand that for black women, which is the focus of my discussion experience with the workplace, but <laughs> just by definition was on the American plantation during chattel enslavement. Okay. And that is where a lot of the disciplines that we study every day come from gynecology and obstetrics plantation in terms of all of the major advances advancements that were made in the 18th and 19th century, 20th century. That's where it came from. Okay. J. Marion Sims. If you're unfamiliar with who he was, look him up, look up his public kind of what we accept him as and then research controversies associated with J. Marion Sims and his unanesthetized work on black mothers and infants on the plantations. Okay. And then you'll have a different view. There is a great book authored by Harriet Jacobs, who is a professor emeritus and doctor um, out of Harvard who wrote the book called Medical Apartheid. I would encourage uh, people to check that book out and read it. Just read it. Okay. And then you'll have a, a um, kind of more understanding of what you're experiencing when you come upon one of my posts. There's another great book out by a uh, Dr. Jonathan Metzl called The Protest Psychosis, How Schizophrenia Became a Black Disease. And he goes through an entire history of how psychiatry as a profession um, underwent very racialized changes that happened at a period of time where black people were fighting for civil rights in this country. Okay, I study psychology in my doctoral work, and I have had to study a lot of people that if it's not for me bringing to light their troubled associations, Skinner, Thorndike, James McKean Cattell, a lot of these people who have authored major theories and major developments in educational and cognitive and differential and behavioral psychology critically analyze who they were and what types of things that they were involved in. Okay. This is important. And as a researcher, that's what I, that's, that's my focus. So, um, as I was saying, I kind of got off topic a little bit, but as I was talking about how this relationship is contextualized from the plantation to the corporate environment of today, uh, for black women working in predominantly white institutions, this is, the definition, they're called PWIs, 
um, or predominantly uh, white work environments where there are a, a lot of aspects of our identity that are constantly under assault and that are being policed so much so that we begin to internally police ourselves. Okay, so I talked about hair, hair grooming, hair styling, hair choices. I talked about social and communication styles, interpersonal communication styles, um, interpersonal communication competencies. I talked about color blindness and colorism. I talked about naming conventions. And another thing that I want to talk about is gender. Um, we talk about, I talk a lot about the concept of intersectionality. Intersectionality was developed by uh, Kimberly Crimshaw, a lawyer, um, who, uh, African-American lawyer, um, I want to say in 93 or four coined the term intersectionality. What is intersectionality? Intersectionality is basically looking at how race and gender and other socially defined classes as the theory has evolved, um, intersect to create interlock, interlocking systems of oppression and domination. Okay, and so the reason why this frame was created, intersectionality, was because you had a lot of black women who were not having their unique needs and history and experiences and interests spoken to um, because as a group, black is black and primarily black male. And as a group, woman is is white and predominantly white women. Um, and the, again, these aren't my ideas. There's research out there that supports this from now until uh, before I was born. <laughs> But, um, and so we're talking about gendered racism, essentially. Okay. So you have situations in the workplace where white women and black women are coming together and working together, but one of us is experiencing a constant attack on our identity. Okay. And that has a relationship with the plantation because black women and white women largely developed their interpersonal history on the plantation and those relationships and those contexts carry through generations and decades and generations and generations into the present. Okay. This is a fact. And my role is simply as a social science researcher, um, is naturally to be an educator about that research, uh, and those things that I uncover. And so I just want people to be aware about um, when you're seeing something from me um, that I have a goal in mind and my goal is my research focus and my research philosophy which is oriented around justice and equity and as a uh, researcher my job is not to speak to what people want to hear it is to inform them about what they need to know, what they should be open to considering, questions that maybe they should be asking, reflections that maybe they should be undertaking, um, and different ways that they can arrive at being more informed about things. Um, the liberating thing about being um, an educator 
and about being a social science researcher is that you get to follow the facts and you get to pursue the truth regardless to who it offends. So I understand that, you know, it may offend people's professional sensibilities and, and I get that. Um, but you can do your work and, and I'll do mine and hopefully we can learn from each other. Um, and the last thing that I want to say is um, when you read my post and there's emphasized words in capitals, that's not anger. That's actually advice that I was given by LinkedIn experts, <laughs> who, or I guess they're experts, who have said that in order to get the algorithms to work in getting your post visibility, that you need to uh, type in some type of kind of abbreviated one liner, two liner sentences, and that you should use a, a certain minimum amount of capital, uh, capital title case. <laughs> Uh, capitalized all capitalized uh, words so that's what that is so uh, it's it's never anger I'm, I'm actually very quite calm and easy to get along with um, but I understand that when you're reading what I'm writing it, it makes you feel convicted of something or maybe it makes you feel alienated in some way or maybe you should explore why you're feeling like that black white alike it really doesn't matter um, if something that I'm writing is eliciting a response, an emotional response in you, you might want to start asking yourself, why am I feeling this way? What is going on within me that's causing me to have this negative reaction or this adverse reaction or this uncomfortable dis-ease with what I'm reading or what I'm seeing or what I'm considering? Because I think there's a lot that can be learned from that. There's a lot that can be learned from that. So, um... That is all that I had to say on identity safety. Well, um, for now, because this has almost been 30 minutes. Um, that's kind of an overview. I'll be getting more detailed about that topic as the weeks move on. Um, but I just want people to understand that I am a researcher that is focused on justice. And um, because of that, much of what my analysis will come from a critical perspective, okay? Critical theory is a, a particular perspective. If you're unfamiliar with it, um, quick Google um, will help you understand more about that so that you um, can appreciate a little better um, or have less conflict <laughs> about things that you may come across um, that are authored by me, okay? Thank you for your time.